Father, it's not very often that we intentionally come and dive into your word to learn about the Holy Spirit. But this is what Jesus has been teaching on, and we delight to learn about him and to grow in our knowledge of our God. One of the persons of the Godhead being the Holy Spirit who is worthy of our worship and our praise. And so, Father, we ask you now, would you send your Holy Spirit to do in our hearts what you have always sent your Spirit to do in the hearts of men, to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, to bring the Word of God to life, to purify us, to empower us, and to give us everything we need to be faithful to you in the next moment, in the next difficulty, in the next success, the next blessing. May we be filled with your Spirit, and may you be glorified as we willingly put ourselves under his sway. And Lord, we praise you, and we give you thanks for the privilege of it all. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. We return once again to John chapter 16 this morning and find ourselves in a passage that, as a dominant theme, has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the dominant theme of this passage, the whole passage, including what we dove into last week. Jesus has been talking about the Holy Spirit not only in chapter 16, but throughout the Gospel of John. Let me give you a sampling of that. You can just uh, listen and follow along. John 1, 32, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in something resembling the form of a dove, and John the Baptist announced that Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I mean, right out of the chute, chapter 1. The theme of chapter 3 is that sinners must be born of the, what? Spirit. Chapter 6, we learn that it is the Spirit who gives life. Chapter 7, verse 39, Jesus teaches those who believe, uh, teaches that those who will believe will receive the Spirit, who will become to them like rivers of living water gushing from their inmost being. And John has a little commentary there explaining this, he said, speaking of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 14, verse 17, Jesus calls him the spirit of truth who abides in you and will be with you. In chapter 14, verse 26, getting to a more concentrated teaching area in the Gospel of John on the Holy Spirit. 1426, Jesus calls him the helper, or if you're fond of the King James, the comforter, who will teach the apostles all things And bring to their remembrance all that I have told you. And then in 1526, Jesus once again calls him the spirit of truth who testifies about Jesus. And then here in chapter 16, once again, he is referred to as the helper. So helper and spirit of truth, common terms that Jesus liked to use for the Holy Spirit. The helper who would guide the apostles in all the truth. Now, for a couple of months, we've been kind of working our way through chapters 14 through 16. 
and this has been variously known. Actually, the different sections are called by different things theologically in the theological community. The first area is um, called the upper room discourse because it was all taking place in the upper room. That's where the Lord's Supper was established. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And then the farewell discourse after they leave the house, and that's kind of where we are right now, probably not up on the Mount of Olives yet, but headed toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And so here we are working our way through 14 and 16 where Jesus speaks more about the Holy Spirit than anywhere else in the Gospel of John. And knowing what the disciples are about to face after his pending arrest, Jesus determines that they need to be introduced to the Holy Spirit in very practical terms. The fact is, they were going to need him, and they didn't know it. They had always had Jesus. Why would they need anyone else? And so Jesus assures them that after his departure, he will send another helper. He has been their helper, but he will send them another helper to provide all that they needed to be faithful to their calling. And the question then arises, how? How will he help? When he comes, how will the Holy Spirit help the apostles? Well, according to 15 verses 26 through 27, the Holy Spirit will give them the capacity to testify with power concerning Jesus. He would also, in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, he would enable them to remain firm under persecution, and he would fortify them against the temptation of apostasy. And then in 16, verses 5 through 11, which we saw last week, he would go before the apostles, convicting the world of three things. You remember what they were, right? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. You missed that last week. That was important stuff, so... You might want to go back and and read or listen. In chapter 16, 12 through 15, Jesus teaches them that the Holy Spirit would be the one to disclose truth that they could neither discover nor remember, I can identify with that, or understand or even apply apart from the Holy Spirit's help. They needed the Holy Spirit. They couldn't remember what Jesus was teaching, how he corrected them, his explanations of Old Testament texts. They couldn't remember everything that he said, and and they couldn't understand everything that they read. They couldn't apply it, and they had no way of discovering it on their own. And the reality is, however, the apostles really only had, up to this point, they had a very limited, very limited, very vague comprehension of the Holy Spirit. It's not as though they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. But their understanding of the Holy Spirit to this point was really limited to what they had learned from the rabbis, the rabbis' interpretation of the Old Testament relative to Holy Spirit passages. And so it was pretty pretty cloudy, pretty blurry for them. Nevertheless, as the apostles will demonstrate through their writings later on, The Old Testament is where the foundations of truth related to the Holy Spirit are firmly laid, if not fully explained, and certainly not fully explained. In fact, there's a whole section of the sermon that I cut that I'll just mention, and that is that for the most part in the Old Testament, most of the references to the Holy Spirit, the authors are not speaking of him as a third person of the Trinity, Now, as 
Revelation progresses, that becomes clearer and clearer, clearer especially in the, in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it was more like holy was an, was, was a, was an adjective that described the Spirit who is God. Holy Spirit, or the Spirit who is holy. And we see that throughout uh, um, the Old Testament. But as we move along, as the Spirit himself moves along and gives progressively more revelation, we learn more and more about the Spirit. Now, we don't have time to fully unpack what the Old Testament teaches about the Holy Spirit, and I wouldn't have time if I had a month or two to do that. But I do want to introduce you to some truths that you may not have considered. Truths the apostles would have only dimly understood. I want to focus on three major themes on the Holy Spirit out of the Old Testament. Three major themes. And this is, this is all kind of introduction. And then we'll kind of get to this text a little bit and draw some conclusions. Three major themes about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Um, these are each, by the way, themes of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that the New Testament authors pick up on and they run with it. And so you see why I'm saying the foundations of the doctrine of pneumatology the study of the Holy Spirit, are, are laid in the Old Testament, but they're amplified in the New Testament as more revelation is given. Now, you want to pay attention to these because if you're going to a small group tonight or this Wednesday, uh, they'll be on the test. Um, not really for those of you who have been to small group. We don't give tests, but uh, we are going to be discussing some of these things, and you might just want to follow along and take some notes. So here we go. The Spirit as the water of God's cleansing. The Spirit as the water of God's cleansing. Now, now, since we're talking about the Old Testament, let's go back there. Let's go back to the, the book of Ezekiel and chapter 36. Okay, now, let me just give you a heads up on this. I don't hear a lot of pages turning. You should be finding Ezekiel right now. That'd be great. Two passages we're going to flip back and forth to or Ezekiel 36, 37, so keep your thumb right there in Ezekiel 36, thereabouts. And then John chapter 3. So if you've got, you know, kind of your pages marked there, you'll be able to flip back and forth pretty quickly. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Now this is that great text in the Old Testament speaking of the coming new covenant in which God will send his Spirit to remove from his people the heart of stone, that dead heart. He would actually do a spiritual heart transplant, replacing the heart of stone with a living heart that is alive to God and wants to obey and has the capacity to obey. And so here's what we read. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. No time to get into a lot of context here. Let's just read the text and you can read the rest later. 25 through 27. Then... God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel, then I will sprinkle clean water, clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Wow, 
There is a lot going on in those few verses. Here, the Old Testament promise is that, that one day, God would put his spirit in his people. He's comparing that to giving them a new heart. So, receiving the Holy Spirit someday in the future. He didn't know when, didn't know anything about the cross at this point. But someday, the Messiah would come. He would bring the Holy Spirit, or he would send the Holy Spirit, or something. But in any case, the Spirit would come, and when he comes, he will transform your heart. And he will purify your heart, and he will clean your heart of its idolatry. It's like the effect of pure water, water coming and purifying you, cleansing you, bathing you, scrubbing you. By the way, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about the ministry of the Word. And we're going to see ministry of the Word and the ministry of the Spirit I mean, they're, uh, they're inseparable. And so husbands, how do they love their wives? One of the things they do is wash them with the water of the word, which now we see behind the scenes is really the ministry of the Holy Spirit through husbands, through uh, dads and moms for their children, washing one another with the water of the word. And by the way, you think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Why did he choose washing. All of this connects. All of this is tied together. Now, that's Ezekiel 36. Keep your finger there because now we're going to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Now, all of you know John chapter 3. What's the most famous verse in John chapter 3? 16. That's right. So, we're not going to talk about John 3, 16, but I just want to make sure you knew where we were going. John 6, John 3... (laughs) Jesus comes on the scene, okay? This is, this is centuries later after Ezekiel, okay? Ezekiel makes the promise, hundreds, hundreds of years go by. Jesus comes on the scene. One day at night, one of the Pharisees comes to him. Doesn't want to be seen um, fraternizing with the enemy. And so he comes at night and he meets with Jesus. And he has questions, and he's not doing a good job of verbalizing them, and so the Lord does it for him. Nicodemus and Jesus are talking about how to get eternal life. How to get eternal life. So you see the connection here already with Ezekiel. We know that a person has to be cleansed. They have to have a new heart by the Spirit to have eternal life. And here Nicodemus is asking about that. And Jesus seizes upon this theme saying, look at verses 5 and 6. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. I tell you the truth, unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, listen, when I was young, and I'm not that, and it's hard for me to remember that or believe it, but uh, when I was young, when I was a teenager, I used to think that what Jesus was saying is, First, you have to be born. That's born of water. And then you have to be transformed by the Spirit. And that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is pointing back to the prophecy of Ezekiel. Someday God would send his Spirit like water. 
The Spirit must have his way with you first, or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Read it again. I tell you the truth. Whenever Jesus says that, he's saying, you better pay attention to this. This is really, really, really important, and especially for Nicodemus, who was big teetrial, and he was getting it wrong. I tell you the truth, unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so you see, Jesus is pointing Nicodemus back to the prophetic word of Ezekiel, that the Holy Spirit is like purifying, cleansing water that makes sinners clean and acceptable to, the, to God. What's the alternative? Do the sacrifices, do the rituals, observe the Sabbath day, genuflect, wear the, the appropriate costumes, you know, when you're unclean, stay outside the camp. When you're clean, worship all of these rules and regulations and Sabbaths and feasts and new moons and celebrations. Law, 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 ceremonial law everywhere. And the Pharisees thought, that's how you get to heaven. You tithe on your mint and your dill. You offer the appropriate sacrifices and you condemn those who don't. And Jesus is saying, nonsense. Salvation is only by the water, Ezekiel's water. What's that? The Spirit. It's the Spirit. And frankly, Nicodemus should have known this. And Jesus was scandalized by the fact that Nicodemus didn't understand these things. He says in verse 10, are you the teacher in Israel and do not understand these things? I mean, did you notice the definite article there? The teacher in Israel. I mean, I don't know what that means exactly, but I do know this. It means he was a big-time teacher. He was well-respected. This was the go-to guy on theological issues. No wonder he was coming to Jesus at night. He had to humble himself, and it was scary. He didn't want anybody else to know he was asking these questions. He should know this. You, the teacher in Israel, and you do not understand these things? You'll recall back in chapter 1 where John the Baptist was preparing the way for Messiah through water baptism. And when speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, John the Baptist says in chapter 1, verse 33, I baptize you with water, but this is the one who baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. You see the connection? Water, Spirit. What is the Spirit in the Old Testament? Who is he? He is, according to one theme of the Old Testament, he is the purifying water of God who comes and cleanses you. And without that cleansing, you can't know God. You can't know God. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the same passage, he says, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, how do you get that? How do you get that? I asked, I had some guys out building my fence this week, and I was sharing the gospel with them. And, uh, and it was amazing. I almost didn't share the gospel with them. Because when I started talking with him, he was telling me, he found out I was a pastor, and he was telling me all about his church and his, um, the men's ministry he's actively involved in, the man cave. And uh, got to get a ministry like that, the man cave. And 
And he's telling me, you know, we meet all the time. It's my second church. We moved and, and in another Baptist church. And, uh, and I thought, you know, I don't, even have to, I don't even have to talk about the gospel with this guy. He obviously has known the Lord for a long time. But I went ahead and did it anyway. And when I started asking him questions, he was clueless. He had no idea. I asked him, what would, you, what would you say to God if he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? I thought he would say, Jesus, the cross. He went, ah, I don't. Gee, um, I have no idea. I have no idea. And so we started talking about these things. Do you understand there is a righteousness you desperately need, don't have, and can't earn? Where are you going to get that? Ezekiel answers the question. You get it from the Spirit. Jesus says you desperately need it. Ezekiel tells you where you're going to get it, and Jesus tells where we're going to get it. We're going to get it from the Spirit. He is the purifying, cleansing word, uh, water of God. Um, turn to John chapter 7 for just a minute. John 7, because later on in John's gospel during one of the feasts, the people were gathered for what was sometimes called the water pouring ceremony. Verses 38 and 39. John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. Well, let's start with verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, isn't that interesting? As the scripture said, he's referring to the Old Testament. As the scripture said, from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. You say, well, that's kind of a cryptic connection to Ezekiel's water passage. Right, but look at verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So sometimes the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was thought of as water, the purifying water of God. And then there's a second Old Testament theme related to the Holy Spirit, and it is this, the Spirit as the wind of God, the Spirit as the wind of God's power. In the Old Testament, of the 378 occurrences of the term spirit, which in Hebrew is ruach, the word is translated wind or breath 140 times. Literally, wind and breath simply refer to the movement of air. Whether it's the air, the wind of a storm, a physical storm, or whether it is the animated breath of a living being like a human or like an animal. Either way, wind and breath are often the translation of the word ruach, spirit, in the Old Testament, according to its context. Now, the connection between wind and breath is seen sometimes even in our parlance as Americans who speak English. Um, I remember when I was a boy, I got into a fight, and this other boy punched me in the belly, and I thought I was going to die because I got the what? I got the wind knocked out of me. Well, we had that expression, that idiom, we got the wind knocked out of me, but it was really the breath. But we say the wind because it's, 
there's clearly a connection. It's the movement of air. And when it moves, when all of it moves out of your body, you feel like you're going to die. And if it stays out of your body long enough, you will die. Of course, wind, in that case, means breath. And it's interesting to note, however, that both Old Testament uh, and New Testament terms for wind and breath are the same. It, it is commonly translated spirit. In the Old Testament, ruach, you would think spirit. And in the Greek, in the New Testament, it is pneuma. It means spirit, but it also means wind or breath. Pneuma is from where we get the English terms, for example, pneumatic. You see somebody outside with a, um, with a jackhammer, and they got that big compressor? We call that a pneumatic tool because it is run on air pressure. If it's hydraulic, it runs on water pressure, right? Pneumatic, or here's another term that many of you are familiar with, especially us older folks, and that is pneumonia. It has to do with the lungs, the movement of in and out of air, and when you have pneumonia, you just can't do that very well, which is why it's dangerous. One of the most common ways the term breath is used in both Testaments is with reference to a person's inner being. A man's spirit may be lifted up, or his spirit may be cast down. He may, he may be happy, he may be sad, he may be exalted, he may be depressed. Or it may refer to a person's life. David, one time when he was being sorely oppressed by his enemies, he said this, um, Into your hand, speaking to God, into your hand I commit my spirit. And you know somebody else who said those exact words? Jesus said those exact words before he took his last breath. And then the gospel very clearly says, and he breathed his last. This becomes evident again in the book of James where the author makes a strong connection between spirit and breath when he says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And I thought, you know, if you're going to use an illustration, you ought to use something concrete to explain something that's unclear. And the idea of the spirit not being in the body is not concrete in my mind. What does that mean, the spirit? How do you, how do you know? How do you test that? How do you know? But if we understand that the word here is pneuma, and it can be also translated breath, then we see what he's saying. We have something concrete. When we see a body laying on the ground or laying in bed, and it's not breathing, we say it's dead. That person is probably dead. And that's, that's James's example. That's what his whole point. Just as the body without its breath is dead, so faith without works is just as dead. Now that's powerful, isn't it? If you say you have faith and you don't have works, you're like a body that doesn't breathe. You're dead. Now, that's important. The spirit of a man is equated with the life of the man. And likewise, the breath of God is that by which he gives life. You remember Adam. He created Adam out of the dust of the ground, and he blew into him the breath of life, and Adam became a what? 
a living soul. Why? Because God breathed into him. He gave him life. This is the terminology of the Old Testament that the New Testament authors pick up on. Sometimes, however, the Bible speaks of the Spirit in terms of wind. Turn back with me. I've kept my finger there in Ezekiel 37. It's 36 and 37. I hope you have two. And uh, in, in chapter 37, we have the vision of the dry bones. The dry bones. The old black spiritual song, you know, the knee bones connected to the shin bone. It was based on the prophecy of the dry bones out of Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, we don't have time to read all of Ezekiel 30, 37. But, once again, the prophet Ezekiel helps us understand the workings of the Spirit of God. In the chapter immediately after Ezekiel's prophecy that the Spirit is giving God's people a new heart and purifying us as with water, chapter 36, here we find the prophet speaking of the Holy Spirit again. But this time he is speaking in terms of wind and breath. Now follow along as I read in Ezekiel 37 verses 1 through 14. And here we go. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he called me to pass among them around and about, and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and so they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, O Lord God, you know which is just Hebrew for saying, is that a trick question? (laughs) Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones. Now pay attention to this. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the bones, behold, I will cause the breath to enter you that you may come to life and I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath, breath, breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied. As I was commanded, I prophesied there was a noise. Behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone, And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath. You get it? Life. There's no life in them, no breath in them. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath. And breathe on these slain that they may come to life. And so I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them. And they came to life and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. Let me tell you what's going on here. Um, God is answering a question of, of, of Ezekiel. Lord, is there any hope for Israel? He decimated them. Here they are, they're 
in Babylon, demoralized, the temple's destroyed, the city's destroyed, the land is destroyed. Is there any hope for Israel? And God says, let me show you. Let me show you what I'm going to do. And he gives them this vision. This is what's going to happen. They are dead. Think Ephesians 2. Dead in your trespasses and sins. How do you come alive when you're dead? You need something. You need life. You need breath. The breath of life. And how's that going to happen? The wind of heaven will come. And God will use his wind, who is his spirit, who will give life, and they will come back to life. The Holy Spirit is like a powerful wind that blows in the heart of a spiritually dead sinner and gives him the breath of eternal life. Again, we think of Adam. Where did he get the life? From the breath of God. Now, we're not talking scientifically about physical breath. These are, these are word pictures. This is how does God, what is it like when God redeems someone? What is it like when God gives someone eternal life? It's like God sending his Holy Spirit to wash them clean of their sin. It's like God sending wind, the breath of life, to come and put them together properly and to give them life, give their soul life, give their spirit life by the Spirit. All of these terms, they, they're so intermingled and they're all over the place in the Old and New Testaments and and we get the privilege of looking at it. So the Holy Spirit is like wind and like breath. It makes sense then, turn back to John chapter 3. And as you're going there, let me remind you of John 20. Because at the end of the gospel, after the resurrection, Jesus comes to the apostles and he breathes on them and says to them, receive the what? The Holy Spirit. Breath, wind, spirit. And perhaps now it's clear why in Acts 2, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, what's the first indication that he arrived? The sound of a, a rushing Mighty waterfall? <laughs> no. A rushing, mighty wind. You see, the Bible often speaks of the Holy Spirit in terms of wind or breath. And sometimes the Old Testament portrays the Holy Spirit as the water of God who cleanses and transforms. And still other times he is spoken of as the wind or breath of God who gives life. If you're back to John chapter 3, notice what else Jesus says. Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus. And he says, look at verse 7. Do not be amazed by this. Don't, don't be amazed by what I say to you. You must be born again. Verse 8. The wind blows wherever it wishes. 
and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. How does it happen? You cannot understand how it happens. In the spiritual realm, in the realities of the Spirit, where God makes men new, this is not science. This is the eternal God doing a miracle. It's like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. You can't explain it. It comes, it does its thing, it leaves, and you don't know where it's going. There's a mystery here that you will never understand. And here's the way, it's, here's the way it is in the Greek. He says this, and see if I can translate this on the fly. The pneuma, the pneuma, translated wind, blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the pneumatas, the Holy Spirit. He's like the wind. He's like the wind. And when he comes in power, he transforms. And he's like water. And when he comes, he washes you clean of all your guilt and your shame and makes you as pure and holy and righteous as Jesus. And so sometimes the Holy Spirit is like the water of God who cleanses. And sometimes he's like the wind of God who comes in power and and gives life to those who would otherwise be dead. But there's a third and similar theme in the Scriptures for the Holy Spirit, and that is the Spirit as breath of God's word, or the breath of his mouth. Now, it's important to note that when the New Testament writers speak of the wind or breath of God, it's often connected to the Spirit's ministry of giving us God's word. It's different than the others, and yet very, very connected Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And that brings us to our text this morning, so I suppose all of that was introduction, right? Let's look at our text for this morning, verse 12. This is John 16, verse 12. And here's what we read. This is Jesus still speaking. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative. For whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose or declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me for He will take of mine and will disclose or declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he, that is the Holy Spirit, takes of mine and discloses or declares it to you. Disclose, N-A-S, declares, E-S-V. I think declares is a better translation according to the context because of the communication terms here. 
Now, in verses 5 through 15, Jesus was teaching his men about the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus would send after his glorification, after the cross, the resurrection. In 5 through 7, we saw that the Spirit was sent to help. In 8 through 11, we learned that the Spirit was sent to convict. And now we learn that the Spirit was sent to speak. To speak. Or we could say it this way. In this passage, beginning with verse 5, the Spirit comes to help. The Spirit comes to convict. And now the Holy Spirit comes to speak on God's behalf. Now, what does the Spirit, the breath of God, what does he say? What does he declare? What does he disclose? Well, he declares, this is, this is Sunday school stuff, but what the Holy Spirit declares is the word of God. He gives to the apostles the very words of God. And notice the terms that point to language and communication here. Look at verse 12. I have many things to say, verse 13. The Spirit will speak, verse 13 again. Whatever he hears, he will speak, verse 13 again. And he will declare or disclose, verse 14. He will take what is mine and declare, verse 15. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Say, speak, declare, declare, declare. This is what the Holy Spirit is coming to the apostles to do, among other things. But this is so critical. As you study this part of the Gospel of John, it becomes evident that there is much past revelation that the apostles just don't understand. You remember the frequent question, is it now you're going to set up your kingdom? Is it now you're going to set up your kingdom? Is it now you're, even after the resurrection, is it now you're going to set up the kingdom? They just, they just didn't comprehend. Moreover, there's much more that Jesus wants to tell them. There's more revelation for them to receive, but they don't even understand past reservation. Uh, I keep saying reservation like I'm going on vacation or something. Revelation, past revelation. They're not ready to receive it. Jesus clearly says, you're not ready to receive that right now. So how in the world are these 12 men supposed to powerfully and persuasively testify of Jesus Christ in the world when they are so ignorant of proper understanding of past revelation and not ready to even receive future revelation? I mean... And just to complicate things and twist the plot a little more, Jesus isn't going to be there to help them. I mean, whatever you've got, that's what you've got. Ready or not, your seminary, your seminary education is over. It's graduation day. You're done. Their education under Rabbi Jesus is now finished. No more teaching. In a couple of hours, he will be arrested, and by the next morning, he'll be executed. What happens to Christianity after that? If they can't remember what he said, they didn't understand the Old Testament anyway, and he's not going to be around to give them more revelation that he thinks they need. I mean, how is this going to end up being, how is this story going to have a happy ending? What happens to Christianity now? The answer Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send to you another helper, the Spirit of truth. Who is the Holy Spirit in this context? He is the breath of God. 
not in the sense of being the one who breathes life into dead sinners, but rather as the one through whom God speaks. And what will the breath of God say to the apostles? He will declare or disclose the truth. And that's why the name Jesus uses here for the Holy Spirit is Spirit of Truth. Now, there are three ways in which the Holy Spirit will declare the truth to Jesus' apostles. Three ways. Number one, and maybe four. Did I add a fourth? I may have added a fourth after I thought about this more. We'll see when we get there. Number one, he will correct their misconceptions about the, tr- about the truth, Old Testament truth. He's going to correct all that. The Holy Spirit is going to come and fix all their bad theology. They thought the only people on the planet who could be reconciled to God, for example, and receive the Holy Spirit were Jews. And they thought this even after the Spirit came. Not for very long. It wasn't long before all this was clarified. But that's the point. They're wrong. And you remember the Holy Spirit led Peter to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile, Acts chapter 10. And after preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit was poured out on these Gentiles. And they began to speak in unlearned languages. And everyone was amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on these Gentiles. And frankly, this was scandalous. They had to have the first church council um, was wrestling with, what do we do now with the Gentiles? And, And it was like they were after Peter. Peter, what did you do? And Peter said, well, who was I to tell God not to do this? Among the Gentiles, don't blame me, blame God. It was a big deal. Gentiles, how are they getting the Spirit? We thought this was for us. And they thought observing the Sabbath was an eternal moral law. But the Spirit inspired Paul to warn the church, Colossians 2.16, not to let anyone act as your judge in regard to food or drink or festival or new moon or what? Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow, Paul says, of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Colossians 2.16. And before the Spirit was given, they also had misconceptions about the kingdom. They had misconceptions about kosher food. Also, chapter 10 of the book of Acts, where Jesus comes and says, look, that's all over with. His revelation, it was new revelation that was correcting and other things, but the Spirit brought the Spirit brought correction where needed. And the Spirit brought change where needed. And secondly, he would, he would not only correct their bad theology, but he will remind them of Jesus' truth. The truth Jesus taught them. He will remind, the Holy Spirit will come and remind the apostles of the truth that Jesus taught them. Because it's hard to remember. You know, I love reading the Bible. Uh, love, you know, every year or so I finish reading the Bible and then uh, I start reading it again. And there are places where I get to and I go, huh, I don't remember that. <laughs> In fact, there's a lot of the scripture. I'll read it and go, I'm sure I've read this 50 times, but I don't remember it. I don't remember this. I got a brain like a sieve. It all just leaks out. It just goes away. I got to keep filling up, keep filling up. We just have a propensity to forget. And by the way, uh, 
uh, Deuteronomy, the whole theme of Deuteronomy is remember and do not forget. Remember and do not forget. That's one of those laws they couldn't obey. Because try as they might, they couldn't help but forget. At least if I was one of them, that's the way it would be. But here we have John 14. Are you in John? We were in 16. Look at verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 26. Here's what Jesus says about the Spirit. 14, 26. But the Helper... Okay, now, now remember... That was a clever use of term, wasn't it? Remember. Remember that we just learned that the disciples have a propensity to forget. They're not even ready to receive the next thing Jesus says because they can't remember the past things Jesus has said. And so, they're going to need to remember all of that after his death and resurrection. And Jesus knows that. And so he says, 1426, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Don't worry about it. You guys are going to have my spirit. You just can't even imagine what he's going to do for you. John 2, verse 22, the disciples were confused. This is an example of this happening. Okay, you got to think, John chapter 2 is early in the narrative, but John is writing it years and years later, looking back. In John 2, 22, the disciples were confused when Jesus talked about raising the temple in three days. You remember he cleared the temple, he cleansed the temple, and everybody was mad at him, and the Pharisees, you know, and Jesus says, look, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, it took us 40 years to build this. You're going to raise it in three days? And they were confused by that. And John writes, 2.22, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples, what's the next word? Remembered that he had said this. And they believed, they not only remembered, but they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. How'd they do that? I mean, three years ago, right? Jesus did that first thing out of the chute. He cleansed the temple. This is one of the first things that the disciples saw him do. How'd they remember that, that one sentence? The Holy Spirit brought it to remembrance, just as Jesus promised. John 12, 16, after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Again, John is reflecting back on these things as he writes. These things, watch this now, he's including himself in this. These things, his disciples, including him, did not understand at first. So, kind of get this. All these things that Jesus is doing, they're following him around. He's doing all this kind of stuff. They're not getting it. They're not, they're not seeing the symbolism. They're not seeing the pictures. They're not seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. All these things the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, which, by the way, that was the time stipulation for receiving the Holy Spirit. He had to be glorified first. When Jesus was glorified, they, what's the word? Say it. Remembered. They remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. 
meaning they worshipped him. It was unbelievable. All these people, it looked like nobody was for them. And then suddenly, the masses were for him. And then they were against him again. And they didn't know how to interpret any of that. And they, they remembered. When they needed it, they had it. Acts 11, 15 and 16, Peter explains to the council in Jerusalem. And as I began to speak, again, this is, this is Peter at the council, and he's, he's trying to give explanation for how in the world. Peter, how did you let the, the, uh, the Gentiles come into the, into, this, into the church? And Peter's giving his defense. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you you know he's got to be thinking. When Jesus said that, I had no idea what he was talking about, but I remember, and now I understand. Now some of you are going to ask, are we just talking about the apostles here? Are we talking about us? I mean, does Jesus bring... Scriptures to our remembrance when we need it. And I would say to that, yes. And honestly, when I'm up here preaching, some of the texts, some of the things that I've shared with you this morning, I didn't plan to say. The Spirit reminds me. However, that's not what this text is talking about. He's talking about the Holy Spirit giving revelation, giving God's word to his apostles immediately, and for those who would write it down, forever. This is how, and this is the whole point of this message. I don't want you to miss the point. If you're sleeping, wake up, because this is the point of this message. The question is, where do we get the Bible? Where does the Bible come from? And so the Holy Spirit would correct misconceptions of their truth, of their understanding of truth. He would remind them of Jesus' truth, his teaching. Third, he would clarify Old Testament truth. This is great. Turn to the book of Acts. I love this. Man, I wish we had another hour. Acts 1.15. So you're familiar with chapter 1. Okay, so... John, I mean, not John, Luke picks up where he left off. Jesus has been raised. He spent 40 days with his men, and then he ascended back into heaven. This all happens in chapter 1, and uh, the ascension starts, ascension starts in verse 9, and then they're back to the upper room. They go back to that place where Jesus washed their feet and instituted the Lord's table in, uh, in verse 12, and they're sitting around, and they're wondering, okay, what do we do now? What do we do now? And they look around. And they start counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. It's supposed to be twelve of us. Judas is gone. What do we do? What do we do? Okay, so this is a question of the will of God. What do we do? What does God want us to do? Verse 15. At the time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, gathering of about 120 persons, was there together. And he said, brethren... The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. What's he doing? Suddenly, for the first time in Peter's life, 
He understands the Bible. He's looking back at the book of Psalms. Look at verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. Let another man take his office. And so what do they conclude? We've got to have a new man. And they brought in Matthias, or Matthias, however you pronounce his name. And then look at verse 16, uh, verse 15, Peter's sermon. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now he understands the teachings of the prophet Joel. And suddenly, the word of God is coming to life for them. Why? Because just as Jesus had said, the Spirit would come and teach you. And look at chapter 2, verse 25. But God raised him up. We're kind of thinking through his sermon. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says of him, what's he doing? He's going to quote out of Psalm 116. And then he says, look at verse 34. Uh, Verse 33, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, and then he quotes Psalm 110. All of a sudden, they understand their Bible, the only Bible they had, Genesis through Malachi. And it all is clear. It all makes sense. And so the Holy Spirit came to clarify Old Testament truth. He corrected their misconceptions. He reminded them of Jesus' truth. He clarified their Old Testament truth. And finally, number four, he will reveal new truth. And this, again, is why I believe he's talking to the apostles. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 2, 7. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. And this is an extended passage and it looks like we have just enough time. First Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's talking about his reliance on the Spirit. Pick up on verse 7 or verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom about among we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. For if they had understood, it would, uh, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, now understand what he's talking about. He's not talking about the Romans here. He's talking about the Jews who had the word of God but didn't understand it. They wouldn't have crucified their Lord if they understood. If they had the Holy Spirit... 
But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God has revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And what's he saying? The Spirit gives us truth. And the truth he gives is entirely different than what the world believes and entirely consistent with what God has already said. The Spirit of God gives us revelation. And turn with me to Colossians 1. And there's so many texts, I just picked two. But Colossians, if you're looking for it, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, it's General Electric Power Company. You get that, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. 125. Here's Paul talking about his ministry, and he says this. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been manifest to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Old Testament Before the Holy Spirit, they didn't know anything about being in Christ. But when the Spirit came, it all became clear. And Jesus had said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so where did the apostles get the truth they proclaimed? John 20, 21 and 22 tells us, Jesus said to them, peace with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. The breath of God. And they received, they said to them, he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter made this plain. This is where the New Testament scriptures come from. Because Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now let me tell you about this. Moved by the Holy Spirit. Also, maybe some of your translations say, carried along by the Holy Spirit. But not carried like you pick your child up and carry. But moved or carried along like this like a boat with its sail completely up. And it's full of the wind, which is moving it, pushing it forward. It's the same analogy. The wind of God, the wind of heaven, the breath of God moved the, the apostles and carried them along so that what they said were the very words 
of God. And 2 Timothy 3.16, which all of you Awana people have memorized, all Scripture is what? Inspired. In English, it's interesting, even in English, because spire comes from the word spirit, right? But uh, theonoustos means to breathe. Isn't that interesting? All Scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When I was in seminary, one of the doctoral students was asked by his board, um, has, is there error in the word of God? And I think he was an Indian brother. And he said, what? Does God have bad breath? <laughs> he understood. His word is the very breath of God. He cannot have error. Why does this matter? Why should it matter? Why should it matter to you and me? Beloved, where the word of God comes from, where the Bible comes from, is so important to us. It matters because we live in a time when the truths of the Bible are being questioned and assaulted in ways that in America we've never seen before. We need to understand that the teaching of the Bible is not some kind of catalog of cleverly devised stories and ideas, but the very truth of God disclosed and declared to the apostles of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, who is the very breath of God. And because the Word of God came from the Spirit of God, it is the only truth that will never change. Listen, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Why does it matter? It matters where the word of God came from because in the day, in a day when the lives of so many seemingly good people are tearing apart at the seams, we need to be reminded that God's way of thinking and living is far better than anything the world has to offer. And because the word of God came, the word of God came by the spirit of God, it is sufficient for every need and worthy of our trust and our absolute obedience. I try to tell my kids, living according to God's word is just better. It's just better. It, it matters where the word of God came from because the truth of the origin of scripture fortifies us against the false ideas and ideologies of the world. False ideas about God. False ideas about salvation and sin and sexuality and suffering and a host of other issues that are essential for us to know in a day when men wish for nothing more than that they have their ears tickled. And what are they having their ears tickled by? Whatever is the latest man-exalting, Christ-belittling, scripture-twisting philosophies. I was talking to a brother yesterday. I think he was a brother. Well, he is educated theologically beyond me and has suffered and is really struggling. And he told me, you know, I just struggle with the Bible now because along with all the theology, I learned all the philosophy. 
And I kind of put it all together, and it just... Keith read this morning from the Psalms, every man is a liar. And I thought of that guy yesterday. I thought, all those, all those philosophers that, that he learned, they're all liars. I used to tell my class, a worldview class, when we got to philosophy, my students always have trouble trying to categorize the, the philosophers. Okay, who taught what? And this one, Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and, and all of these guys. And oh my goodness, it makes your, it just throw your brain in a blender. It just is a mess. And, and after we got through it all, I said, listen, there's only thing you need to know. There's only one thing you need to know about the philosophers. They were all wrong. To the extent that they vary from the truth of Scripture, they were just making it up. Because the Word of God came from the Spirit of God, trusting it will keep us from being tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine that comes along. Why does it matter? It matters because the truth of the origin of Scripture reminds us that we are not neglecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit by reading and meditating upon and obeying and counseling and teaching and singing and living and sharing the Word of God. We're not neglecting the ministry of the Spirit. This is the ministry of the Spirit. He speaks. He moves through his word. And yes, through providence, I get that. He's doing 10,000 things that we can't see, even in this very room. And he is like the wind. We cannot control him. We cannot even define him. But this is the ministry of the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit. Okay, parallel passages, Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians will say, be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians says the same thing in the same context. It's as if Paul's writing the same letter to a different group of people. And he says, um, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you read his explanation and you go, oh, well, that's the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. And by the way, filling of the Spirit is not like having a, a coffee cup that you fill with coffee, though I'd like some. Um, it's like this. It's not a cup full of water. That's not the analogy. It's like a sail filled with the wind. You know how you remain full of the Spirit? In every aspect of your life, you keep your sail fully unfurled. And you say, God, whatever you want me to do, teach me in your word. Give me opportunity in my circumstance. Empower me to be faithful. Help me guard my heart so that the sail doesn't come down. Help me to keep it up. Fill me. Keep me under your sway. And don't let temptation rule over me. Beloved, in a world that is rejecting believers, Christians, and our Bible more than ever, take heart. Take heart, beloved. The truths you believe and proclaim and obey come not from the, the minds of men, but from the very mouth, the breath, the spirit. Lord, we praise you for your word. And we thank you 
you've given it and we neglect it. And we praise you this morning for giving us your word. We praise you for giving us your spirit who has given us the word through the apostles and gives us the capacity now to use it effectively and to give, who gives us the capacity to believe it and obey it. No, Father, I pray that you'd use us this week. As we have opportunity with unbelievers, may we not be ashamed of the gospel. When we have opportunity to encourage or to exhort or comfort, may we be quick to do it with your word, to speak your word. And Father, it will be a privilege to do so. And we look forward to the joy of being under the Spirit's sway as he ministers the word to one another. Lord, these things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.